I'm your host, Cullen, and this is Cauldron, a military history podcast. And tonight, we're going back to the Battle of Marengo in 1800 in northern Italy. The fate of a battle is a single moment. The decisive moment arrives, the morale spark is kindled, and the smallest reserve force settles the issue. Napoleon said this, and I'm not sure that there's a better battle in his career than the Battle of Marengo to really exemplify this statement. He is renowned for having these incredible set-piece battles where he wins on the fly and he's able to be in so many places at once and, and perceive the enemy's intentions and force them to do what he wants them to do. Morango is a situation, it's a battle where none of that applies. He's back-footed from the very beginning, and it's almost entirely of his own, uh, his own doing, which is very rare for Napoleon. So... It's a great battle. I think it's a fantastic story, uh, and and there is no more dramatic battle. Or I, I would say that they a lot of Napoleon's battles are incredibly dramatic. You think of the pyramids under you know uh, fighting under the pyramids and and the the Imperial Guard at Waterloo and and all these uh, massive moments that he had in his career. Marengo might be the most dramatic if you were to write it as a script. And hopefully the people making the Ridley Scott movie uh, keep that in mind. I would love to see Marengo on film. But let's kind of regroup because the story leading up to Marengo is is one that is dramatic and fantastic in its own right and, and could be its own podcast uh, because it's it's an incredible story. It's an incredible lead-in. I haven't been around very much this summer because uh, summer in Maine is very busy, as I'm sure I've said before. Uh, It's not an excuse. It's an explanation. But there you have it. Um, But we are headed into the slower season, so there will be more episodes coming. And I appreciate you guys hanging in there and and listening when you can. Uh, It means a lot to uh, have you guys interact with us on social media. So that all aside, housekeeping aside, let's get into the battle. Uh, before that, let's talk a little bit about the strategic situation and the lead-in. Because what we're dealing with with Marengo and the story of Napoleon Bonaparte is we have the little Corsican, the, the little corporal, this revolutionary who's also conservative, an anti-monarchist, an emperor, a husband, a cuckold, ruler of all Europe, a prisoner, and most beloved man in France, most hated man in Europe, Napoleon is one of the most amazing historical figures in large part because of just how many things he was in such a short span of time. Uh, to have risen from not even a minor, but but a minuscule noble family from an impoverished island province of the, of the French Empire in the 18th century to a, a talented and respected artillery officer was quite the social achievement. Uh, to to have parlayed a few small but significant contributions to the success of the infant stages of the French Revolution into the command of the Army of Italy, it shows this rare political animal with an even rarer military mind. 
success in Italy made the pale but good-looking young genius into a household name. He wasn't yet the adored emperor, obviously, but the path to that throne was being laid rather rapidly. The decision to strike the hated English, perfidious Albion herself, by striking a blow against her empire in India was grand, if a bit far-fetched. I'm not sure you could sell that venture today, but back then it was a, it was deemed a potentially profitable adventure. Uh, Tally ran the foreign minister at the time. Uh, he was... Uh, kind of understood the cunning and geopolitical genius of the move and, and backed Napoleon's call for men and material. And the selling point was not that he intended to sail to India itself, but that he planned to march there. Uh, an invasion of Egypt and the follow-up conquest of the British possessions in the Near and Middle East would open the door to a French army following Alexander's trail to the very doorstep of the Indus River and the subcontinent itself, thereby threatening Britain's gem, the, the crown jewel of the empire, India. And the pressure that this would place on the British would prove too much even for the bellicose politicians of Pitt's parliament in London. Napoleon understood that by cutting India out of the British equation, it might very well bring them to their knees and therefore bring them to the table uh, of peace. It would, it would bring them to a position where they had to uh, start talking. Uh, Napoleon set sail with his army in 1798. He's famously brought along uh, botanists, scientists, art, artists, archaeologists, who are all ready and, and there to decipher the secrets of the land of the pyramids and the Sphinx. The expedition had some pretty dramatic victories, uh, but the disaster at the Battle of the Nile, where Nelson guts the French fleet at anchor, a battle we will eventually get to. I, I, I think it's one of my favorite, favorite all-time uh, naval battles. It's, it's an absolute smasher of a battle, um, but it completely strands the French in Egypt. They are stuck there pretty much uh, without much ability to communicate or, or send much in the way of, of material to Napoleon and his men. And then they are hit with plague, which uh, infected their entire ability to act. And it ends in this defeat at Acre or Acre, um, and it brings this young general crashing back down to earth. He's, he's the cream of the crop for a few moments there, and then all of a sudden reality strikes, and he's kind of uh, not brought low, but he's brought back down to reality. Uh, he pretty dishonorably deserts his army in Egypt, and it, it, that's definitely a mark against him in the historical context of his career. He doesn't tuck tail, but he slips away in the night, leaving his entire army there to figure out a way to either survive or succeed or uh, get home. And, and you'll, we'll eventually cover some of that, and uh, it goes kind of belly up for them. And in November 1799, Napoleon orchestrated a coup that dissolved the directory, which was the governing power after the various smaller groups that took power throughout the the terror and the French Revolution, you had this weird kind of moment of, it was just very shifting 
period. And so there was no clear understanding of who had what kind of control and, and what the power really was going to be behind the government. And then finally it settles and, and kind of uh, asserts itself, and it's called the Directory. And Napoleon is a general for the Directory for a, a while. And then in 1799, he uh, orchestrates this coup, and they create the consular government. By December of twenty, uh, uh, by December twenty fifth, he's had the backing of his army really help him further consolidate power within the consular government, and he is named or installed as the first consul. And this gives him the lion's share of power within the government. He basically, he's not quite a dictator, but he's the he's a he's a step down from dictator. And up until this point in the story, Napoleon is is brilliant and, and clearly a man on the make. He's clearly a man of rare intelligence and ability, but he's not necessarily unique in historical terms. There are plenty of generals and politicians who have not exactly done the same, but have, have walked a very similar path to power. And it's not a... it's. It's something that I think is an interesting historical factor, or it's something to always reframe your mindset when we look at history. Nothing that we've read in the history books was guaranteed. The end of World War II was not guaranteed before 1942, 1943. That's probably a rare one where it was pretty assured by 1942, but... Certainly World War I, if you think about it, that didn't, there was no guarantee that the Allies were going to win in 1918. Up until probably late spring, uh, after the, the Kaiserschlacht, there was really no, no idea who was going to win. And most of history plays out like that. It's not written in stone until it's done and then written. So Napoleon's rise, although startling and uh, definitely uh, very fast and, and, and impressive, didn't have to end with him as an emperor and then a failed emperor and then uh, a prisoner. There, there, were, there was uh, an untold number of ends to the story of Napoleon that never got told because of how it unfolded. But, but we have to remember that when we're reading history because sometimes it gets easy to get into that mindset of, I know how the story ends. He ends up on a little island as a prisoner. But that was not known in 1799. It was not known in 1800. And it wasn't known up until the the end of the day at Waterloo. So uh, just something to as a sidebar to remember as we're, we're going through this story. Um, 1799, Christmas, he gets the lion's share of power as the first consul. And there was a whole bunch that had to be accomplished between when he became first consul and when Napoleon would crown himself emperor of a vast European empire. So let's get to the lead in here. The first consul was a mixture of home secretary, chief justice, and chief warlord. Though, as we'll see, there was a caveat in the the structure of that government that he couldn't actually command in the field, although by the end of Marengo, he is clearly in charge. Um, 
But as we lead into that, he is giving uh, commands to one of his subordinates, uh, Berthier. And the first consul had a, a, a huge plate. As Home Secretary, Chief Justice, and Warlord, he's dictating daily bulletins. He's uh, he's dealing with new crises all the time. There are uh, rebellions in the Vendee. Uh, there's anti-Austrian pamphlets that have to be structured and written out. There's the Dutch treaty that has to be enforced. There's uh, communiques with the Russians that have to be held. There's policy at home. There's army building. There's outfitting that army. There are laws that have to be restructured. And it, it's impressive to think of one man as doing all this. What's even more impressive is that he often did a lot of these things at the same time. He would have multiple secretaries, and he'd be walking up and down a line, or he'd be pointing at them and saying, uh, halfway through the anti-Austrian pamphlet, he's talking about that, then he has a thought about what he wants to say to the Russian, and he goes over to them and explains that, and then he remembers, oh, we have to make sure we have a million muskets in, in reserve, and having all that in his mind is, uh, as, as a person with a uh, mediocre brain, uh, it is in beyond comprehension that somebody could have all that floating around. Now, obviously, he, he had secretaries, and a lot of this is written down, and he had many people talking to him, but he was also the final word on a lot of it, and a lot of the ideas are his own. So uh, it's a, another notch in the Napoleon belt for why he's held in such such high regard. So in 1799, he had a few... M pretty big priorities on his list of, of uh, on his honeydew list, if you will. So uh, not least of those is retaking a lot of territory f for France that had been lost to the Second Coalition. So as France is struggling to find its footing in Europe post-revolution, it's a very scary thing to the rest of Europe. You have this seemingly bloodthirsty mob of armed revolutionaries who are just bursting with energy to get as far away from Paris, spreading their message of anti-monarchy as they can get, and they're doing it with the conquering zeal of, of an army under Napoleon. So they're afraid that their own crowns are going to be taken from them, if not their heads as well. And so the other uh, aristocratic powers and empires of Europe, Russia, Austria, Great Britain always, and Prussia, sometimes Spain, Portugal, all these other countries are starting to uh, kind of side-eye France, and they will form a number of different coalitions. And these are coalitions with the sole intent of not just penning in the revolution and maintaining France's natural borders, and that's something that pops up over and over again. The French's, uh, France, France's natural borders, um, they are intent on also removing whatever revolutionary government is in place and reinstating the Bourbon family or, or the original monarchy that was uh, the ruler of France. And the second coalition had a lot more success. By the mid-1790s, uh, you're starting to see a wearing down of France's armed forces in the fields, kind of a, a 
general lethargy as far as their ability to maintain armies in the field. They lose some ground to the Austrian and Russian armies uh, in the fight for uh, different areas. So along the Rhine and in the what would be the Holy Roman Empire up until Napoleon dismantled it, the Russians have taken a lot of territory and the Austrians have as well. And then in Italy, where Napoleon's legend is pretty much born, France is forced all the way back from the peninsula. They've pretty much lost any control on the peninsula, and they're pushed back to the Provence, Genoa, Maritime Alps region. Uh, a victory in Zurich by the General Soult stabilized the French position there, and the so Second Coalition coalition pretty much collapsed with Russia withdrawing in 1800 on the Tsar's orders. So the Second Coalition is strong. It has some success and some victories. And then by 1800, it's dissolving and falling apart. Switzerland is kind of out and Denmark is kind of out and, and, and the British always fighting the French, but they're not able to really get strong help from anybody particularly. Austria is always in the field, but they're not really doing a heck of a lot. So by 1800, the line has stabilized. The French have regained some territory in Switzerland, and they're starting to try and work their way back into the Rhine, work their way back into northern Italy. Uh, while the French army of the Rhine under General Moreau held the center and kept the enemy's attentions, Napoleon, who is again now first consul, went on a flurry of improvements to the military and the state. He made it so that artillery drivers became militarized instead of just hired hands. This gave him a greater ability to move the most important piece of military equipment of the time and pretty much since cannon was created. If you, if you look back all the way back to uh, the siege of Constantinople and how important cannons were up until this time period and how field cannon became really important, grape shot was a massive, massive uh, part of Napoleon's success and being able to move small cannons on the field quickly. Uh, World War I, uh, the vast majority of, of deaths in World War I were caused by artillery all the way right up till today where we're seeing in Ukraine the importance of artillery in terms of a decisive military uh, weapon on the field of battle. So d d artillery drivers are militarized. The Consular Guard, which is destined to become the Imperial Guard of legend, is completely reorganized and created into pretty much what it would be under the emperor. And finally, the most important part of that military reorganization that Napoleon underwent is uh, the creation of the core structure. Now, the core is experimented with throughout the 1790s, 1780s. Uh, you'll see it in a few different forms throughout history where other countries do this, but they don't give it the formalization that Napoleon does. And it's very simple. It's very straightforward. It seems obvious, but if you think about the numbers involved and the amount of, of fodder and munitions and, and just logistical aspect of it, it really couldn't happen until modern times. And a core is very simply 
it's uh, two or more divisions of infantry, a division or brigade of cavalry, and a division of artillery, and then assorted engineers, support, and logistical troops, all under the command of a senior general. Uh, in the French case, it would later be a marshal, but at this point, it's just a general. And the the reason that this is important is it means that a corps, it can work in conjunction with other corps and create a vast army that uh, Napoleon would be able to use over and over to outwit and overpower enemies, or it can splinter off and function in its own independent arms. So you, if you have three divisions, well, you can have one division in the center pinning your enemy and then have your two other divisions swinging around a flank, or they can go off and engage smaller enemies, or you have this cavalry brigade or division that can act as its own uh, its own independent force. It just gave the the general in command of the corps a lot of maneuverability and flexibility. And then the overall uh, commander of multiple corps has an incredible amount of choices. And as a general, as a leader in in uh, anything really, uh, having choices is or having options is an incredible asset. If you're forced into one or two or three different choices, you, you really have no choice. But if you have endless things that you can do, if you have a, a, a myriad of different responses that you can give to stimuli or, or reactions that you can give, or if you have a myriad of different ways to force someone to do something or force an enemy to react to you, you are in a, a great spot. You're in a very healthy position if you're a field commander. So that's uh, the biggest improvement that, that Napoleon installed or instituted was the, the core structure to the French army. And it was, it was the first country to do it in Europe on this scale. But by 1805, actually, when you start to see Napoleon getting beaten in the field, it's because his enemies have seen what he's done, and then they've started to uh, institute the core structure to their own army. And then when Napoleon is faced by a number of armies all with their own core uh, system, then it becomes harder for him to handle uh, and, and harder for him to win. After a few failed attempts at making some kind of agreements with both Britain and Austria before the campaign of 1800, Napoleon ordered Berthier, his second-in-command, because, again, remember, the first consul can't actually command an army. He orders Berthier to uh, structure and create what he calls the Army of the Reserve, and he wants this centered in Dijon, France, near the Alpine passes into Italy. Now, what he was doing when he was, again, he's first consul, so he's making the, he's acting as foreign secretary to a certain degree, and he's reaching out to Great Britain, he's reaching out to Austria, and he's he's saying to them, look, please, let's make peace here. I, I think peace is a good path for all of us, and there is a way to it. Let's find it. Now, he's not doing that because he actually wants peace. The, the French system at this point, and especially Napoleon's career, can't have peace. It has to have conquest. Uh, it's a green monster that it has to feed itself. But by reaching out for peace, he's accomplishing two things. He's kind of muddying the water for the British and the Austrians, 
it's hard for them to go back to their people and say, we have to continue this fight, we have to continue this war, if the people then look at the newspaper and say, well, why, isn't a, why are the French asking for peace and we're saying no? Um, you know, if, if they want peace, let's give them peace. I, I'm sick of this war. It's, it's killing my business and my children. Uh, let's, let's give them what they want. It's also on that same footing that Napoleon can then turn to his people and say, look, I wrote letters to these guys. I want peace. But they said no. So I guess war it is. Uh, so it accomplishes. It's, it's one of those beautiful, uh, wonderful little double-edged swords where it accomplishes two different tasks uh, at once. Uh, it also uh, kind of gives Napoleon a little bit of time, a little bit of breathing room while these peace feelers are going out. He is ordering Berthier to create this army of the reserve. And the reason he's telling him to do it in Dijon, near these Alpine passes into Italy, is because the position that he's in right now is the army of the reserve has a choice. It can either help Moreau on the Rhine. General Moreau on the Rhine has the largest French army in the field right now. It's got a massive 120,000-man army facing an Austrian general named Cray. And Cray has about 100,000 men, maybe a little bit more, and they are just slogging it out in frontal assaults on the Rhine. Now, the army of the reserve could go there and help Moreau, but Moreau is doing fairly well, or, or at least he's not in a position of uh, danger. He's, he's doing fairly well, and he's holding off um, an equal or, or just under equal man uh, army. In Italy, however, the French have only about 40,000, maybe 36 to 40,000 men facing an Austrian general named Melas, and he's got 90,000 men. So... The choice for Napoleon and the Army of the Reserve is they can help Moreau and win a crushing blow, or they can go down to Italy and try and stabilize that front and, and help out the 36,000-man army of Italy. Uh, the fact that Moreau was fairly well established as a popular general with the country's largest army at his command, meant that the newly or freshly minted first consul really couldn't replace him, and he, he really couldn't dictate to him what he had to do. He, he could only order him so far, and he could only nudge him to go along with any plans. So Napoleon was in kind of a tight spot. He knew, if I show up next to Moreau and I've got my army of the reserve and we do win, Moreau's going to get all the credit. And even if I do show up, it's not necessarily a guarantee that Moreau is going to do what I want him to do. Because, again, the first consul can't really dictate on the field of battle. He can't command an army. So Moreau is in a pretty good spot to do whatever he wants. Uh, Napoleon could only really get him to continue his frontal assaults on the Austrians in front of him. And he gets Moreau to agree to detach a corps from his army of the Rhine to reinforce the army of the reserve. In the event, as we'll see, Moreau sends only a division to the St. Gothard Pass, and, and not even that one uh, fully participates in Napoleon's coming plan. But he delays his attack, which 
it has a, a negative effect or a knock-on effect for Napoleon. So Moreau delays his continuing frontal assaults, and it forces Napoleon to act a little bit slower than he would normally want. The strategic situation, we pretty much outlined what's happening away from where we're going to zoom in on, which is the area around Marengo. But there are some other things at play here. The Austrians believe that the French are weak in Germany and had entirely no notion of the Army of the Reserve. So the Austrians facing Moreau think that they're going to eventually walk over him. It's just a matter of wearing him down. And then they don't know that there's an army being built by Napoleon, the Army of the Reserve, in Dijon. They really hoped that Melis in Italy could pound his way through General Massena, who is the French general in Italy, who's trying to hold on to what little foothold the French have in northern Italy. And they're hoping that Melis can pound his way through Massena, march into the Maritime Alps and the Provence region, and then be joined up by a British force landed by the Royal Navy, which is gathering on... Uh, it's one of the Majorca or Menorca. It's on one of those islands that the British are assembling a landing force. At that point, this would force the French to move quickly to shore up the breach on their border, and then the main Austrian push could proceed into the Alsace-Lorraine region on into France proper. So it's kind of a, a uppercut followed by a haymaker is the idea here, where the Austrians are hoping to get into the southern part of France France, and have the British come in and, and help them out and create such a, uh, a crisis down in the southern port portion of France that everything is going to focus back on that and shoring up that, and that the French are going to be forced to send a lot of reinforcements down there, and, and, and really all the attention is going to go there. And while that's happening, the Austrians under Cray are going to just smash through the Army of the Rhine and head into that uh, that wonderfully overly uh, fought-over region of Alsace-Lorraine and into France proper and create a true breakthrough moment. On April 6th, an Austrian attack splits up Massena's army. So it sends him and around 10,000 men into the city of Genoa with only four weeks of food. And it sends the other general of that force, Suchet, with 18,000 men reeling further westward into the Maritime Alps, Provence region. The siege of Genoa is kind of a sidebar, but it's, in, it's, it's a, again, another fascinating little interesting story that I want to get to. Uh, Massena... He holds out for uh, as long as possibly. It is a harrowing ordeal for these guys. Uh, he's wounded multiple times, and Massena actually has his hair turn white from the stress of it. And, and he knows he's got to hold out. There's, there's letters between him and Napoleon. Basically, Napoleon not necessarily uh, disregarding his situation but just not giving it the full credit uh, of the crisis that it is and just begging pleading with him hold out hold it as long as you can we're coming we're coming just give us a few more days and the starvation levels for both the townspeople and the soldiers are are uh, unfathomable i mean they are harrowing the by the end of the siege 
they're down to a quarter pound of bread and a quarter pound of horse meat uh, per person. And even that was dwindling quickly. Eventually, they are without any food and the they're forced to surrender. But they get great conditions because Mellis at this point is starting to hear grumblings of an army coming down from the Alps. And so his his priority is wrap up this Genoa thing and get the hell out of there because I don't know what's behind me. I got to get back there. And so he gives great conditions to Messena. He gives him safe conduct conduct back to Provence and Suchet's divisions. Uh, and the deliberations of this surrender actually help Napoleon because they delay Mellis's army from building up as quick as they otherwise might have. So if he could get back quicker, uh, Napoleon might have faced an even stronger Mellis than he finds in a few days. But because he's down here negotiating this, uh, this surrender of Genoa, Mellis is held up a little bit. Uh, the delay allows for the French to win a small battle at the, the city of Pizenza, which officially cuts Mellis off in the east. We'll get to that, but it's a little foreshadowing to what happens. While Genoa was besieged, 21,000 Austrians were effectively tied up in that area, and another 30,000 were following Suchet southwestward. So northern Italy is basically a bunch of small garrison towns uh, of Austrians that are holding their conquered uh, cities and towns, but they're not full armies. They're just, you know, a, a, a few brigades here, a few thousand men there, a few hundred here, and the real strength and body of the armies of Austria in Italy are following Suchet and around Genoa. And that plays a huge role here because it gives Napoleon some real strategic maneuvering space. Uh, with so much of the enemy force, uh, focused away, Napoleon realized he had a chance to maneuver freely, but first they had to cross the Alps. And this is a great, I mean, anytime anybody's crossing the Alps in any uh, size, it's a it's an adventure story in and of itself. In mid-May, Napoleon arrived at the Army Reserve headquarters and planned his attack south using five different passes through the mountain range, which it seems like the easiest would be the little St. Bernard Pass, but it would require a much larger supply train. It's a longer pass. It's a longer path for him into northern Italy. And being Napoleon, who is Caesarian in his desire to move quickly and, and get from point A to point B as fast as possible, he decides to go with the Great the Great St. Bernard Pass, which is harder but much shorter and would yield the earliest return for him. So it's a 40-kilometer pass, and they traverse it in six days. And this is a, an incredible story of, of tenacity and endurance. Uh, it's not quite Hannibal, and I believe Hannibal took weeks to cross the Alps. But de- however long it took him, it was definitely more than six days. And I want to say like a third or half of his army was dead by the time they got the other side. Not so with the French, although there are definitely casualties, they're able to weather the the extreme conditions. Uh, at, at one point, the general staff is even having a, a snowball fight at the top of the mountains uh, at a little, there's like a 
a little station where the monks are and they pass out bread and, and either rum or wine or whatever fortified liquor they have to the soldiers as they go by. Well, at that place, you have some of the generals having a, a grand old time sledding and having a snowball fight. Uh, but it's not a fun trip for the soldiers because they couldn't get the cannons up over with pack animals. So it ended up having to be manpower that's pulling these cannons up over the mountains. And it's a hundred men to a cannon and they've got ropes and pulleys and they're doing incredible physical labor dragging these things over the Alps. It's it's hard to even envision, but it's uh, it's incredibly impressive. It's one of the great propaganda pieces of all time. If If you have the time, I can't urge you enough to track down the Simon Shama documentary called The Power of Art. And he, he covers a bunch of different interesting artists from uh, Caravaggio to Rembrandt to Rothko. But there's one on uh, Jacques-Louis David. And it's, it's really fascinating how he used propaganda and created these incredible, indelible images of, of, of the emperor uh, and it's really the the most most iconic is probably the least truthful, and that's the famous painting of Napoleon on his beautiful war horse, who's rearing up, and he's in the mountains, and his great cloak is uh, washing over him, and 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 kind of enclosing in him in the wind, and he's pointing forward, and he's he's stunningly powerful and masterful and it's all a fraud because really he was on a donkey and probably shivering and 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 wrapped up as tight as he could be in as many blankets as possible uh, but it it goes to speaks to how uh, the artist can truly form and manipulate and mold not just our our imagination but also it can mold and and manipulate history and create history where before it was just creates myths that become history and then in an interesting way uh, they they almost have more power than the truth Uh, because I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody that if you say Napoleon uh, they don't think of that image uh, of Napoleon so just an interesting little side note. So anyhow, they get through the mountains, but it was a, a very, very tough going. And they didn't they weren't able to bring as many cannon as they wanted because at the other end of the pass, there are a few fort towns that just gave up a good fight. And it forced Napoleon to sneak by at night with his men and had to leave the cannons there to take those towns. And, and it really slowed down his his advance and left him undergunned as he goes forward, which plays a part at the battle. Only about uh, six small cannon are able to get through, and, and this, like I said, would be an issue in the campaign going forward. Once through the passes and with his army congregating, uh, Bonaparte is able to march to Milan, and he takes Milan before going to Massena's help, and that is what dooms Massena to surrendering, or G- Genoa and Massena to surrendering to uh, Melas. 
But it it's a brilliant strategic move because Bonaparte, by taking Milan, not only does he get the arsenal that was there, but he also is able to effectively cut off Melis from the east. So if Bonaparte had marched straight south to Genoa once he got through the passes, Melis would have had the opportunity to retreat eastward and avoid fighting Bonaparte at all. Instead, what happens is Bonaparte goes east first and then goes south, and that boxes Melis into a position where he either has to continue south into southern France and, and hope for the best there, go north into the passes and try and get get somehow get to the Rhine army that the Austrians have up there, or fight Napoleon to get further east, uh, which is what eventually happened. So on June 2nd, Napoleon takes Milan. Two days later, Genoa falls, and that mission that Messina had been given to hold Melis in point for as long as possible falls, uh, you know, continues, and he's able to draw out negotiations. But Melis, taking the city, realizes that there is this army of the reserve romping around in his rear area, so he orders his fractured army, so the forces that are following Suchet, and then his army around Genoa, he orders all of it to congregate at the same point in the town of Alessandria between Turin and Genoa. So at the start of the battle, Napoleon believed that this was a do-or-die battle. He understood inherently that if he failed here, not only would he be cut off, so his army would have been sent reeling into the eastern northern part of Italy farther away from France and and any potential help there and it would have become a situation where the Austrians would have probably found more armies to come and encircle him but it was also a moment for his career that he couldn't let pass by if he allowed Italy to be reconquered fully by Austria and and pretty much uh, fall under the control of the Austrians again, then his successes in Italy would be washed out, which is why his his decision and his his dispositions before the battle are very strange because he he had he didn't have full knowledge of the enemy or their purpose or whereabouts, and yet he still decided to divide his forces, which as we know and, and as we've talked about, is a cardinal sin, but particularly when we're considering Napoleon, who over and over, this is one of his huge um, kind of standby things, is you never divide your forces in front of the enemy. However, he does it regularly, so it's an interesting moment. Uh, he split his army into four corps under Lane, Dessier, or Desay, Victor, and Duchem, Duhem, uh, each with two divisions, a cavalry unit, artillery, and support personnel, each between six and 9,000 men. He keeps a reserve of 5,000 infantry and a large cavalry force, but as we'll see, it, it plays a, a pretty big role in this battle. And uh, Desay is a fascinating character in his own right. He is probably Napoleon's only equal in the French army. Uh, he's considered by Napoleon to be his equal. 
uh, and Desai is a huge, huge figure in the Egyptian uh, escapade of Napoleon. He, he's one of his most reliable assets, one of his best generals, a subordinate that Napoleon himself over and over is able to uh, claim is is just as good at at generaling and, and just as smart and uh, able as he is. So the other thing to keep in mind about Marengo is that this, for a lot of the French soldiers, this is their first battle. And some of these line units, the march through the Alps and then the romp around Italy, it's it takes a toll. Uh, these units are hungry. They're sick. They're injured and unattended to. Many of these uniforms are rotting or 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 lacking. Many of the men are lacking boots, and this is all part of the Napoleonic game plan. Because, or well, I mean, he he would definitely not want them to have that situation if it could be avoided. But when you have a population in arms, when you have conscription armies, the ability to to take care of them hasn't quite met their ability to arm them and muster them. So it's probably not for another hundred years before, uh, before you have the, the real, well, I, I don't know. By the end of the Napoleonic Wars, you have countries able to do this. And then definitely by the time of the American Civil War, you have countries able to arm massive conscription armies. But at this point, it's so early in the game that you, they just the two things haven't quite met up. The logistics of it haven't quite met the uh, the conscription. So they're in a tight spot. Napoleon, again, this is another reason why this is such a do-or-die battle for him, is he knows that this army is not going to remain on its feet for very much longer. He has to win a smashing battle and then gather uh, his strength for the next one. Otherwise, this army is about to maybe maybe disperse or teeter and and fall over or or just completely fall to pieces. On June 12th, the army moves to Scri- the Scrivia River and Melis's main force is still in Alessandria, but a, a small concentration of the Austrian army is in the town of Marengo proper. So if we want to kind of set yourself on a map here, the top left-hand corner of the map is the town of Alessandria. The bottom right-hand corner of the map is where Napoleon's army is. About in the middle is the town of Marengo. And there's a couple of rivers that cross diagonally from the top right-hand corner to the bottom left-hand corner. And those rivers each have little bridges over them. This would all be the battlefield that we're about to talk about. So as Alessandria is being filled up with Austrian troops up in that top left-hand corner, in the middle there's a small kind of outpost, and then there's a few small Austrian outposts along those diagonal rivers going from the top right to the bottom left. There's cavalry in the distance and light infantry, but the presence, uh, the, the the presence of those forces and the the weak resistance that they put up, worries Napoleon. It makes him think that the Austrians are trying to sneak away. Whether they're headed north or south, he doesn't know, but he thinks that this is just kind of a show of force to convince Napoleon to uh, stay put or to to wait 
a little bit longer for him to build his own strength so that Melis and his Austrians can slip away. So on the 13th, uh, there's also a, a report that a bridge is destroyed and Napoleon's army marches to Marengo and it comes up against no enemy or, or not even any sign of any Austrians. So he assumes, okay, well, they've gone, so I've got to find them. Uh, the plane in front of Marengo is flat. It's it's perfect for the Austrian strength, which is cavalry and artillery. So when Napoleon's looking at this, he's like, all right, well, these guys left this perfect battlefield that would suit them very well, which means that they really must have gone because there's no other reason why you would give up such a strong position. Um, they must have gone either north to cross the Po River east and and get back to uh, where they'd be stronger, closer to Austria, or they've gone south back to Genoa and towards the Royal Navy's protection. He sends one division north to block that Po River, uh, where he was afraid that they the Austrians might be able to sneak back to their base area. And then he sends another division under Dessay south to smoke out the southern escape area and block that, so that if they do head towards Genoa, maybe Desay can stop them long enough for Napoleon's main force to swing down and hit them in the flank and in the rear. If either of these forces find the enemy, they're, they're ordered to, like I said, hold them long enough for the main army to follow up and attack. The fatefully false report of that bridge over the Bormida River being destroyed by the Austrians seals the whole deal because now you have Napoleon saying, all right, they put up kind of a fake fight when I showed up. Then we go to Marengo, which is a perfect battlefield for their their uses and their strengths, and that's empty. And now they're destroying bridges, so that means they don't want us to follow, so they definitely are leaving. So we're going to uh, suss them out with these divisions heading north and south. Again, this is not great because he is splitting up his force in the face of an enemy that he doesn't know how big it is, he doesn't know where they are, and he doesn't know what their intentions are. The author, one of the sources I used, the author Asprey, puts it well. He says, quote, Logic had been perverted by an intelligence failure of major proportions. He is shooting from the hip here and in the worst possible way. So he splits up his forces in front of the enemy uh, on, on no, uh, based in no facts, just on intuition and, and data that he's receiving that turns out to be false. Uh, because, of course, the truth was that Mellis and the Austrians were preparing not to run away north or south or even west or really they weren't even planning to stand and fight. What Mellis understood was that if he runs, he's going to get beat. If he stands and fight, he runs the risk of getting beat. What he's preparing to do is charge headlong eastward and try and use the weight of his force to punch his way through. He's not really trying at this point that we know of to destroy or dismantle the French army in the field. What he's trying to do is put enough pressure on them that 
the majority of his men can sneak by or squeak by and get out of this encirclement and maybe get closer to the city of Mantua, which is an Austrian base and under siege. So if he could get enough many men over there, then he could break that siege and also have a strong base to, to continue his fight from, and he'd be closer to Austria and just generally in a better position. So Napoleon's read on, on the Marengo situation as we get up to the 14th is completely incorrect. On the morning of the 14th, 100 cannon fired as 30,000 Austrians crossed the Bormida River over the bridge that was reportedly broken but had been not, uh, hadn't been destroyed and move on the Marengo town and field and the French army itself. The force at Marengo was, the French force at Marengo was 20 to 22,000 men strong. It was heavily outgunned and outnumbered by an onrushing attacker. So they really were getting overwhelmed, just beaten to hell. The surprise was almost total. The French center under General Victor was battered back all morning long. And it's vicious fighting. We're talking about uh, the 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 age of Napoleon here, where you have muskets being fired at paces away, you have uh, grape shot, canister shot, uh, cannonballs, just doing absolutely devastating damage to tightly packed men. This all forced Napoleon to recognize and admit his mistake. He recognized fairly quickly, oh wait, we've got a problem here. So he sends riders galloping north and south to try and catch those divisions that he'd sent out the previous day. But there was really little hope that they would A, be found, and then rerouted in time, and then they would eventually arrive within time to be of any use. Because if you think about it, they they had an almost 24-hour head start, and... A lone rider finding, uh, in, uh, you know, a division at this point in history, there's no communications. It's just point and hope you get the guy. And then they have to turn around and then hightail it back. And you're only traveling as quickly as you can get men to march. Um, so it was a, a very drastic and, and last-ditch last effort by Napoleon to find those divisions. And, the, and again, the fighting is incredibly heavy. Oftentimes, units are firing at each other from just a few dozen paces. You've got cannoneers unloading into masses of men from less than 100 feet away, which just shreds flesh. You, the, the damage that grape shot can do to a group of people is it's hard to imagine. It's impossible for me to imagine. Uh, but it's essentially just imagine a what kind of damage a, a a shotgun would do to a group of tightly packed mice, um, small animals just obliterated. You have people being torn to shreds by this, this cannon fire. And the fighting goes all day. It's back and forth. There's some seesaw affair around Marengo, 
both sides are trading cannon and 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 bridges and huts and little uh, farmsteads and landmarks all around the area all day long. So uh, the French are holding this cannon, and then all of a sudden the, the Austrians take it, and then it becomes a strong point, and the French counterattack, and then the Austrians counterattack. That's happening hundreds of different little spots all over the Marengo area throughout the day. And remember, the French are outgunned heavily. Uh, they take the brunt of this cannon fire. It's this raking cannon fire all day over and over because the Austrians had 100, the French had uh, 20 or 30 or so. By mid-afternoon, the French are left pretty much melted. Um, they, they take this massive cavalry charge from the Austrians, and the whole French line shivers under the attack. They begin to withdraw. They're tired, they're weakened, and they start to move back to the village of San Guiano. Um, all the way, the Austrians are surging forward. All the way that the French move back, the Austrians are hot on their heels. And now, again, the French are moving back to that bottom right-hand corner of the map, and they are defeated. This is a battle that is won. It is over. And at the peak of the afternoon's chaos, when the battle was in the balance, Desai appears before Napoleon, giving his assessment, quote, the battle is certainly lost, but there is still time to win another, end quote. Now, that line is interesting because it is dis disputed. Uh, it is said in a couple of different places that Napoleon is the one who says that Desai came in and said the battle is certainly lost. And then Napoleon is supposed to have said, but there is still time to win another. Uh, and then there's another version where Napoleon says the whole thing. But according to Asprey's version, uh, the entire line is said by Desai. And then Napoleon gives his acclamation of, of assent, and he goes on to assist Desai in creating the counter charge. Uh, Desai is ready with his fresh men. They've, they've come back. They haven't been fighting. They've been moving. They've been marching but they haven't been fighting. So all of a sudden, he gets Marmont, who was in charge of, of the, the artillery. He gets him to scrounge up as many guns as he can and put them all together in one place so that their fire would be as heavy and concentrated as possible. And then he gives a pounding barrage uh, that's going to stop the Austrians in their tracks and, and really shock them because this is a moment where they, they believe they've won. And, and let's get a view on the ground here. There's a captain, conscript Captain Coinette recalled, I made the sign of the cross and it brought me good luck. I lowered my head, but my sergeant struck my pack with the flat of his saber. We do not lower our head, he said. No, I replied. This was carnage. The men of our demi-brigade had become lions. Coinette would then later be decorated and presented to Napoleon himself, who apparently tweaked his cheek or tugged on his earlobe and promised him a place in his imperial guard or consular guard at this point if he served the correct number of uh, uh, campaigns. Now, what you don't get from that other than that one part where he says this was carnage is that Coinette's uh, demi-brigade suffered incredible losses. I think we end up I, I don't remember, but there's an incredible amount of men that end up injured or dead in this one group of, of a few hundred men. 
Napoleon at the same time is screaming like something out of Braveheart. He's riding around up and down uh, the line of men yelling at them, quote, my children remember that I am accustomed to sleep on the field of battle, end quote. And then he's telling them, you have to take this because I'll have nowhere to sleep if we don't win this field, if we don't win this battle. I guess I, I, I won't have anywhere to sleep. So he's urging and encouraging and, 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 and willing his men on to the fight. And he's doing it, and it's working because these men are fresh. And the sudden appearance of these fresh French infantry give the Austrians pause. And then they're hit by this withering round of grape shot from the quickly gathered French artillery. The Austrians stumbled, to say struck, and victory suddenly became defeat for the Austrians. The energetic charge of the French gave heart to the exhausted men that had fought all day. They now found reserves of strength and energy and joined the fray. So the French that just moments ago are running away, they're getting beaten, they all of a sudden see that they've got their buddies, their, the guys that had been gone all day have showed up, and they're starting to beat the piss out of these Austrians, and they turn around and they join in. Because, you know, it's now it's it's become a day of glory for the French. The Austrians... They are just as tired as the French and just as exhausted and just as bloodied. But instead of uh, having the adrenaline of victory behind them, they now have the adrenaline of fear and they quickly deflate and, and start to fade and run. The French seal the Austrian army's fate when the the cavalry reserve under Kellerman swings in from the flank and hits the Austrians as they are trying to gather themselves. And this French cavalry assault just absolutely shreds the Austrians. Uh, it completely decimates them and destroys any potential for the uh, the uh, Austrians to gather themselves and become uh, strong or hold any kind of position. Quote, I shall soon be in Paris. I cannot tell you more. I am in the most profound sadness at the death of the man I loved and admired the most. That's written on the 15th of June by Napoleon Bonaparte as he has just won the Battle of Marengo. And he's talking about his friend, his equal, his uh, subordinate, but a man just as good at, at uh, military command as he is, General Desay was killed in the early moments of his victory-grasping charge uh, when he was shot in the front line fighting with the French. Uh, the rest of the French army, they admit to 600 killed in action, 1,500 wounded, and 900 prisoners, but this is definitely not true. Um, the losses have to be quite a bit more. Uh, the the gentleman we quoted a, a few moments ago, the conscript Captain uh, Coinette, he, like I was saying, his, his, uh, his unit, which had 174 men in it, they had 14 that were unwounded or alive at the end. The rest of that unit was either wounded or killed. So the idea that they, the French army only suffered 600 killed and 1,500 wounded is absurd. Uh, clearly, it's a propaganda move here. Um, much more likely they were either equal to or 
maybe even slightly more than what the Austrians suffered, which is the Austrians had 6,000 killed in action, 6,000 prisoners of war, um, and and that 6,000 KIA, and that also includes wounded. So that's 6,000 casualties and 6,000 POWs, 40 cannon, 15 battle flags are taken. And because the French were losing, it's it's safe to assume that their numbers were either equal to or even greater than, uh, but that the turn of the events at the end of the battle and the, the switch from defeat to victory was so uh, unlikely and so uh, just devastating for the Austrians, the French were able to quickly uh, turn the numbers around in their favor. Napoleon, on hearing of the death of his friend, is said to have questioned, quote, why am I not permitted to weep, end quote. Now, I don't know how to read that. Is he saying that he can't weep, like he's incapable of weeping, uh, that he's one, he's questioning himself as uh, why can't I find it within me to weep, or is he saying that I can't weep because I'm in front of my army or my men because I can't really buy into that. He's very emotional at a number of times. It's not like that would be unmanning for him to do. Um, or is it the the stress of the situation and the chaos of the moment uh, didn't allow him to, to weep, and so then he's questioning that? I, I don't know. I think it's an interesting insight into the mind of the man and a, a real rare moment of him being honest and human. However, maybe he's, because as we'll talk about in a moment, the uh, the rewriting and restructuring of the story uh, allowed him to slip this kind of dramatic, melodramatic line in here that almost is out of something from, I don't know, Downton Abbey or Poldark or something like that, where uh, your, your, your main character has this very uh, emotive and dramatic... Uh, exclamation at the death of a friend. Um, could be that, or it could be earnest. And, and I think the more interesting question or the more interesting angle with which and, and lens to look at it is him being earnest and, and truthful. Um, General Mellis of the Austrians, uh, he, he'd been in the heat of fighting all day. He's older. He's kind of out of shape. He's this bigger guy, but he was in the fighting all day long. He's got two horses shot out from underneath him. He suffers an injury to an arm when he falls. Um, about halfway through the afternoon, he retires. He thinks this is done. It's sealed. It's signed, delivered. Um, he's done. He's going to go relax and, and wait for Napoleon to come and ask for peace terms. Well, um, he finds out later in the day he's utterly defeated and exhausted. And by nightfall, he, again, he's an older man. He calls on a council of his generals, and they decided to sue for peace and for safe passage. The legacy of Marengo, uh, it completely dismantles that second coalition's surge. Uh, anything that they had gained, any ground that had been gained, is completely wiped from the board. Um, after Marengo, or around, I think around the same time, Moreau has a uh, a crushing defeat of the 
uh, Austrian army on the Rhine. So between the two, all the lands, have, all the gains have been recertified, and the victory at Marengo forces the Italian or the Austrians and the Italian states to reinstate and reinstitute the gains and the uh, well the 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 legitimacy of the peace treaty of Campo Formio uh, that Napoleon had won a few years earlier in his original Italian campaign. Uh, so the French border is re-extended. There's even greater uh, indemnities forced upon the Austrians and their allies. Um, the, the French position is completely fortified and uh, strengthened, and Napoleon's name for uh, as great general is only uh, uh, reasserting itself he's become this legend in on the make uh, and and in large part that's because he goes back to paris as he said in his letter he returns to paris and he tells the story of marengo and every time he tells it it gets a little bit more dramatic and a little bit more pro-Napoleon and a little bit more he's the hero of the moment. And I think there are three or four official retellings of Marengo that are released by the Napoleonic uh, press, if you will, whatever that, um, whatever that is, whatever structure that takes. But he puts out this story over and over and over, and every time it comes out, he's a little bit shinier, a little bit stronger, and a little bit more, uh, you know, he knew what was happening. Um, he doesn't necessarily fully change the details in terms of, oh, it was a definite moment of defeat, and we somehow came up with a victory. But he, every single time it gets retold, he's got a bigger part to play in that, uh, and a more heroic part to play in that. Another aspect of Marengo is it has this this career-defining moment in terms of his legacy where it seems like now this is officially the guy that can snatch victory from anything. And we'll see this over and over at uh, Leipzig and then at Waterloo. He, there's always the fear that even when you've won... He's going to do something. He's going to have something up his sleeve. There's going to be a Desai who comes out of nowhere and is able to to uh, just add that secret ingredient that gives him a Napoleonic victory. Uh, so th th there is that part of his aura that has been solidified here at Marengo. And we'll go on to help him for the next 14 years after victory after victory after victory. There's always the ghost of Marengo playing in the background uh, in, in his enemies' minds. Always that idea that, oh, he's going to do something. Even though I've won, there's somehow we're going to get beaten. Um, which I think oftentimes gets generals that he faces to beat themselves. Because they, they just see... Uh, uh, Marengo again and again. So no matter what I do, no matter how I position myself, he's going to do it. And then you add Austerlitz in in uh, five years after Marengo. You add Austerlitz to the the little milieu of 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 ghosts in in enemies generals' heads when they're facing Napoleon. And not only can he do this kind of thing at Marengo, but he can also do that kind of thing at Austerlitz. And 
I don't know how the hell I'm going to beat him. So I think this goes on in many ways to to continuously help him throughout his career without him ever having to even uh, put men in front of an enemy. They've already started to beat themselves because they look at Marengo. Um, interesting side note, there is a dish called Marengo, and it is an Italian dish made of uh, largely tomatoes and I think chicken, and it's supposed to be very good. So I will post that recipe on our social media. That is the story of Marengo. I know it's been a long one, but I've been doing a ton of research, and I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I know it's a loose format script, but uh, it's fun and easy to play with, and I think there are some connections that can be made. Um, So I hope you enjoyed that. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, anything like that, reach out, uh, whether it's by email or follow us on Twitter at Military History Pod or on uh, Instagram at Cauldron uh, Podcast, or you can just go to the show page and shoot me an email. Next up, we have the Battle of Konigratz or Sadowa, uh, which I'm very excited about. It's very underrated. Prussian, uh, von Moltke the Great, and Bismarck. Lots of fun there. Lots of interesting little tidbits and historical foreshadowing and uh, just a interesting story all around. I know I say interesting too many times. Um, if you have an opportunity, I am producing a show called School of War. I would love for you guys to go and check that out. It's a lot of fun. It's fascinating, really interesting. It's guest-driven, so the host, Aaron, is a um, former Marine, and he works in a lot of think tanks in D.C., and he has on people like H.R. McMaster and um, Barry Strauss, and we just talked to Hal Brands and Michael Beckley about their new book called Danger Zone, which is about the coming or likely coming conflict with China. And these guys have some truly fascinating and scary things to talk about. Um, if If you're interested in any of that stuff, go ahead and give it a follow, subscribe, listen. As for always, for both shows, rate, review, subscribe. Uh, thanks again for following and listening, listening along, and thank you for your patience in between episodes, and we will talk to you guys soon. <laughs>